Amen. We are continuing our series now through the book of Hebrews. And um, today we come to chapter 4. And, you know, this has been a tough year. I don't know if any of you got to see the message I preached last week in Idaho, but uh, I was kind of talking about a little bit of that last week, just how unlike anything any of us have experienced before, and it's pretty easy to grow weary. Uh, I mean, do you ever feel like life is one long, hard, never-ending struggle? Struggle to get out of bed? Struggle to go to work? Struggle to get motivated to do whatever it is that the day has in store for us? I mean, it's just a struggle sometimes. And... Uh, you know, maybe you find yourself, like I do sometimes, longing for that uh, pillow and my tempur mattress at the end of an exhausting day, eager to lay down and just close my eyes and, and just rest for a while. I was thinking this week of that old soap uh, commercial, Calgon, take me away, you know. Uh, but the Bible talks a lot about rest. And the concept of rest, according to God's Word, has both a present and a future aspect. In the present, rest is that place where you're fully relying on what God has already done rather than what you must force yourself to do. It's a place where you're at peace with life. And in the future, rest involves, first of all, at the macro level, our ultimate home in heaven with the Prince of Peace Himself, Jesus Christ, but it's more than that in the future. There is a future quality of blessing and reward that is reserved for believers who are especially faithful during their earthly lives. In other words, those who live by faith. And the writer of Hebrews has talked a lot about this reward. And in our chapter uh, that we're looking at today, he comes at it from the angle of, of rest. But peace is, is elusive, and rest can be elusive. I, I love football. You'll find that out about me the more you get to know me. And I particularly love uh, the Dallas Cowboys, which I say with some trepidation because I know if you don't like the Cowboys, it's going to make you think less of me. But I do have my weaknesses, and that's, that's one of them. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, football season has started, such as it is. And uh, when Dak Prescott, the quarterback for the Cowboys, takes the snap from his center, Joe Looney, and he drops back, you know, the defensive line at that moment, the minute the ball is snapped, does what? They start pressing toward Dak Prescott, toward the quarterback. They're just pushing and shoving and pulling and spinning and trying to do anything they can to get around that offensive line and get to the quarterback. But what happens when Dak Prescott drops back and he suddenly stops and turns and hands the ball to Zeke? Well, in that moment, all the pressure of the defense shifts their focus, doesn't it? Instead, they begin to focus on the running back, in this case Ezekiel Elliott, who's now running right into the jaws of the defense. So originally the pressure was on Dak, and the minute he hands the ball off, the pressure is gone. In fact, I can picture in my mind, and I've often thought this is just just an unusual thing. I mean, it's common for in football. You wouldn't even really notice it, but I, I sometimes notice it when, especially on play-action plays, the camera is on the quarterback, 
and then he hands it off, and, and then he just sort of continues jogging the same way he handed it off. So like if you handed it off over here, he just kind of keeps on jogging. And, and typically for a second or two, the camera's still on the quarterback, and you see him just kind of, I mean, he's no longer in the play. In fact, he's running the opposite direction of the play. And then quickly the camera shifts back to the action, where this team of, of defensive linemen, and they're all eight feet tall, grunting and growling are trying to tackle the ball carrier, right? But I'm thinking, what must it be like for Dak Prescott in that moment, right after he hands it off, when he's no longer the focus of all the attacks and the attention, and he can sort of breathe a, a sigh of relief and take a breath. He, he's no longer under pressure. Now, you can see where I'm going with this, obviously. Sometimes we're so determined to make things happen ourselves in our own strength, we find ourselves constantly under pressure. But as we're going to see in this passage this morning, God wants us to, to sort of hand Him the ball, to, to live by faith, not doubt. Let the enemy chase Him for a change, right? In fact, really, we should always be letting God carry the ball if you, if you think about it so that we can rest. Uh, you know, when an athlete talks about being in the zone, you've heard that phrase, they're talking about the fact that they are playing and performing at a whole different level. I remember back in the day hearing Michael Jordan, uh, the basketball player, describe what it's like when he's in the zone. And he said, quote, it looked to me like the rim was that big and that there's no way I could miss it if I wanted to. Emmett Smith, another Dallas Cowboys rusher, who, by the way, happens to be the all-time leading rusher in the NFL. Um, but he, he built a whole campaign before he retired during his playing days around the Emmett zone. And he, he described being in the zone as being in that place where he could smell the end zone and nothing could keep him out. Well, I think God has a zone for believers, so to speak, His children, for us. It's a realm that He wants us to live and function in day after day. It's operating at a spiritual level that is marked by faith and confidence and calmness and rest. When an athlete's in the zone, it doesn't mean that there's no defenders trying to stop him or tacklers trying to corral him. It just means that whoever and whatever is getting in the way, he can overcome it because he's trusting. Uh, he's in the zone. And the same thing is true for us. Whatever may come after us, if we're in the spiritual zone, so to speak, we can overcome it. Because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. God has a zone for us. It, it's called this place of rest. And as I said, it includes a present reality and a future reward. And this morning, as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews on unshakable faith, trusting God through trying times, we're going to talk about how to find that rest. And just to review, remember Hebrews was written in the late 60s A.D. by an anonymous author. It may well have been Paul, but we can't say for sure. But he's talking to a group of Jewish Christians. They were Jews who converted to Christianity. They believed the gospel, became born again, and were saved. And by the late 60s, uh, uh, Nero was running the Roman Empire, and he was a crazy guy persecuting Christians, burning them at the stake. There was all kinds of pressures. And so many of these Jews who had become Christians were contemplating distancing themselves from the church, not assembling themselves together, Hebrews 10.25, and instead abandoning the faith of Christianity and going back to Judaism, which was still a safe haven, sort of in cahoots with, with Rome. 
And so the writer of Hebrews comes along uh, and, and talks a lot about, uh, makes a lot of parallels to the Jewish faith and <clears throat> Judaism and the Old Testament, quotes the Old Testament a lot, trying to convince his audience, and by extension us today, 2,000 years later, that Jesus Christ is far superior to anything and everything that Judaism or angels or anything else has to offer. That Why would we want to abandon Christ? Now, of course, abandoning the faith or showing weakness or doubt or an, a, a, a weight that wobbles and wavers, a faith that wobbles and wavers, doesn't mean we lose our salvation. The writer is clear about that. The whole Bible is clear about that. Once we've been saved by grace through faith, we receive eternal life at that moment. And if it could ever be lost, it wasn't eternal to begin with. And the Bible is pretty clear that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself, 2 Timothy 2.12. So this isn't about whether you go to heaven or not, but there definitely are consequences for Christians who sort of drop out, who quit. And you may feel like you want to quit sometimes. I mean, I've been there. But at the same time, there are great blessings and rewards for those who steadfastly continue to walk by faith. So there is rest for the weary. Do you need some rest? Do you need a break? You know, these Hebrew Christians, many of them were saying, forget it, I quit. I've had enough. It's not worth it. And, and the writer comes along and says, wait a minute, not, not so fast. There's a future rest, future rewards that awaits you if you'll just live by faith and hang in there. And, the, and also there are present blessings and rewards of, of being in a special place of spiritual maturity with a special intimacy with Christ. It's what Christ talks about when He talks about the abundant life, right? If we hang on. And we can experience that rest Ourselves. So I want to talk about, as we walk through this passage, first of all, the promise of rest. In this section of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, the writer basically presents the alternatives of rest versus struggles that were confronting those Hebrew Christians in the first century, just the way they had per, per, confronted the Hebrew children in the wilderness under Moses, and just the way they're confronting us. And he doesn't want his first century readers to fail to enter their rest the way the wilderness generation did. And he reminds us that there's still a promise of rest today. The wilderness wanderings were 1,400 years before Christ. He was writing 1,400 years later, using them as an example. And as we've said, uh, although if you read this passage many times, you read it at face value and you think he's talking about heaven and hell, even though he never mentions heaven or hell, but we know for a variety of reasons that I've elaborated on previously in this series that he's not talking about heaven or hell. And clearly he's not talking about that with the children of Israel. Enter, those who didn't get to enter the promised land, that didn't get to cross the Jordan but died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith, they're not necessarily in hell today. Certainly Moses isn't, and he was one of those who, because of lack of faith, didn't get to go to the rest of the promised land. The promised land just represented a place of blessing, a land of milk and honey, a place of incredible blessing that God had for His children. And those who walked by faith enjoyed it. Those who didn't, didn't get to enjoy it. And guess what? As we're going to find out, even after they got into the promised land, they continued to, some of them, struggle. So there's this place, there's this ongoing place of rest. He says, there remains a promise of rest. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since a promise of rest, since a promise remains of entering His rest... 
Now that therefore points back to, of course, chapter 3 and what we looked at two weeks ago in the message on the danger of doubt. And he had used, if you recall, the Israelites as an example of how they missed the mark. And, 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 and it's, but it's not too late, he's now saying here at the beginning of chapter 4. That promise still remains for any and all of God's people. The term rest, I mentioned this last time, is the Greek word katapausis. It only appears nine times in the New Testament. Eight of them are right here in Hebrews 3 and 4. Okay, this is the key, especially chapter 4. The whole key to it is this idea of rest. And I also mentioned the only other time that katapausis is mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts 7 in Stephen's speech when he refers to uh, the place of God's universal reign as rest. God is sort of ruling from the ultimate place of rest, as it were. So uh, rest refers to the same thing that it did in Moses' day. It refers to enjoying the full blessings, the full promises that God has for His people as a reward for faithfulness. And as I said, that includes a present reality and a future element. Did you realize that in the king, the earthly kingdom someday, the quality of the experience is going to be different for different people. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 19 in the parable of the Minas. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, everybody will experience a positive experience. It's not like there's going to be any sorrow or sadness or jealousy or difficulty. But there will be an inherent blessing and positions of service and reward that is given out at the beam of judgment. Talked about in 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 and other passages that some people experience more than others, right? And that's true, and we, we should be able to understand this intellectually. I mean, we believe it because the Bible teaches it, but I know it's kind of hard. We, we sort of have been sold this bill of goods that sort of heaven is this equal place for everybody where we all get wings and float around in the sky singing kumbaya or something. But that's not the case at all. Heaven is actually a metonym for the new heaven and new earth. That's the ultimate dwelling place of the redeemed when God destroys this old sin-stricken earth recreates it in sinless perfection, and we will be able to go no longer bound by time, space, and matter. Time shall be no more. There's no night, no darkness, uh, and we'll be able to go from heaven to earth and be functioning and doing a lot during the days of the kingdom. But in the, in the first thousand years of that kingdom, before the new heavens and the new earth, called the millennium, we're going to be doing a lot of different places of service, and some people will receive more rewards than others, just like the, the one who invested their mina, their life of service, and faithfully earned ten more. He was given authority over ten cities in Luke 19. And the one who did nothing with his mina still got into the kingdom, but he didn't get any rewards when he got there. So we need to understand that one of the motivations, certainly not the only one in Scripture, but one very popular motivation that uh, there's a lot of uh, information about in Scripture for believers living by faith, obeying the Lord, trusting and obeying as we sing about is the prospect of rewards. Uh, in, uh, I think it's my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, there's an appendix. Uh, if it's not in there, email me and I'll send it to you, the, in which I list motivations for the believer to do good works while he's on earth. And I have over 30 of them from Scripture. So there are a lot of reasons to do good works. Things like gratitude for our salvation. When you're grateful for something, guess what? You want to serve. Um, setting a good example for others. Uh, avoiding the negative consequences of disobedience. A lot of positive, a lot of reasons to do good works, but one of them is the prospect of rewards. That's a motivation, and it's a legitimate motivation. And so there's this concept of rest. It has a present reality and a future 
reality. He goes on to say, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. This word gospel uh, in English, of course, is the word euangelizo in Greek, and it just means the preaching of the gospel. Here it's the verb form of the preaching of the gospel. It's not a technical term in Scripture that always refers to the good news of salvation through Christ. It can refer to that. There are places that it does refer to that. But sometimes it just means good news, right? Just like good news about anything. Uh, good news that you found your missing car keys, you know, good news, whatever it might be. And this is the way it's being used here and just in a general sense. The good news that there is rest for the weary that was preached to the Israelites is still available today, and it's, that good news is preached to us as well. And he goes on to say, but the word which they heard didn't profit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, this is a really unusual construction in the, in the original Greek here. And the New King James, which is what I'm preaching from, sometimes people ask me, what version are you putting on the screen? And I guess I should mention, always preaching from the New King James. And then if I mention another verse, which I frequently do another version, I'll always mention it. But this is the New King James. And the New King James, basically, because it's kind of an awkward Greek grammar and syntax, it just basically follows the King James. But, and if you look at all the other English versions, they all have it a little slightly different. It's really difficult. But I think none of our modern English translations really capture the essence of what he's trying to say here. I would translate this last phrase, since they did not share the faith of those who heeded it. So let me say that again. The word, this good news about rest, did not profit the Israelites in the wilderness because they did not share the faith of those who heeded it. In other words, the key is faith. Faith, which of course is the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, trusting God in trying times. And the writer is saying here that those who had faith in Moses' day profited from it and received rest. But those, they got to enter the promised land. Those who did not have faith did not profit. And the same thing is true for us today. He says this again and again throughout this letter. Eventually we'll get to chapter 6 in a few weeks where he says, Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, this cannot be talking about eternal life in heaven because our eternal life in heaven is not contingent upon whether I'm sluggish or not. If it was, I'd be in trouble, and so would you if you're honest. Um, and then he also says it again in chapter 10. I looked at this verse two weeks ago. There do not, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Remember we said cast away is to carelessly toss something aside as if you don't need it. And I used the illustration of the uh, lawnmower uh, nut on my lawnmower wheel. Um, he says you have need of endurance <clears throat> uh, so that after you've done the will of God, what? You're going to receive the promise. Again, this is not heaven. Because heaven is not contingent upon how much we endure. John the Baptist gave up the faith at the end of his life, died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus was the Son of God or not. John the Baptist, and he's in heaven today. Again, Paul said, even if we're faithless, ah, pistis, no faith. We have no faith at all. God's going to still be there. Why? Because we're a child of God. The moment we trust the gospel, we are adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, regenerated, born from above, all of those things happen, and nothing can change that positional quality that we have in Christ. Even if later on, through life's difficulties and circumstances, and because we get out of the Word, or we're not fellowshipping with a body of believers, somehow our faith begins to wane, and we struggle a little bit. 
John put it this way in 2 John in his epistle. Look to yourselves that you don't lose the things you've worked for, but that you receive a full reward. Now, we don't work for eternal salvation. In fact, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to His mercy He saved us. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So he's not talking again here a reward of heaven. It's the reward in heaven. And we want to receive that full reward. So don't miss the, rest, the reward of rest. There's nothing like it. This is what he's talking about here in the promise of rest. So never forget, a promise of rest remains. Our circumstances can never eliminate or change God's promises. And then he goes on to talk about the provision for rest. And as we pointed out many times, according to Hebrews, the only provision for rest is faith. Steadfast, consistent, unwavering, persevering faith. He says in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. So, I mean, we could sort of end the sermon right here. Don't get your hopes up. I'm not going to. But we could end it right here by simply saying, you want to have rest? Trust God. You feeling weary? Trust God. Your weariness is, is in opposite proportion to your faith. See, if we're feeling weary and, and tired and just struggling, how's your faith? Because we who have believed enter uh, that rest. Remember what we saw in verse 2. Faith is the key. And the Israelites didn't get to enter the promised land because they weren't believing God. It's all about faith. Did you realize that the method of justification is the same as the method of sanctification? Now what do we mean by those words? Justification is the biblical term that means to be declared righteous. It's basically a synonym for gaining eternal life. If you by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins, you have been born again, you have been justified, you've been declared righteous. Uh, 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 Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Faith is the only way you can get the righteousness that heaven demands. Heaven demands perfect righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, Unless you're perfect, you can't get into heaven. Well, that's the problem. We're not perfect. And we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just try harder, work harder, do more, and try to balance it out because God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not like the 99th percentile will be good enough. You've got to be perfect. And the only way to be perfect is to have the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. That's what justification is. When we believe the gospel, we are declared righteous justification. Sanctification is a biblical term that means to, to gradually be set apart to grow in Christ-likeness. Literally, it means set apart, but it's a theological concept that means to gradually become more like Christ as a Christian. And the method of both, method of getting saved in the first place and being declared righteous, as well as growing and, and living out our discipleship as a Christian, both of those happen by faith. The Bible speaks of justifying faith and sanctifying faith. So again, justifying faith occurs only once in your life. It rescues you from the penalty of sin it results in positional righteousness, and your position can never change once you've been adopted into the family of God, and it brings eternal life. Sanctifying faith occurs at various points throughout our lives. It rescues us not from sin's penalty, that's done, but from the power of sin. The more we trust Christ, remember a few weeks ago we talked about no, no trust, believe, no trust, obey, rather, that obedience stems from trusting, and trusting stems from knowledge. So the more we uh, trust God and have this faith, 
then, then we're going to overcome the power of sin. Therefore, it results in practical righteousness. See, everyone who knows Jesus is positionally righteous. So how many of you in here know the Lord? You've trusted in Christ for salvation. Raise your hand. Okay, good. Every one of you is positionally righteous. Now, if I were to ask how many of you are practically righteous, it kind of depends, right? If I lose my temper or I have bad thoughts or I'm struggling or there are any number of things where we don't act like the child of God that we're supposed to be. We're not walking in the Spirit producing fruit of the Spirit. We're walking in the flesh producing fruits of the flesh, right? But if we walk by faith, sanctifying faith, it results in practical righteousness, and it brings not eternal life, but abundant life, the fullness of life. So if we parallel this to rest, there is, first of all, that eternal rest, actually getting into heaven that comes by faith the moment you believe the gospel, but there's also an earthly rest. That's what we're talking about right now. How can we get out of bed in the midst of a terrible life circumstance, right? Jesus actually t talks about both kinds of rest. Now here I'm talking about heaven and just surviving the earthly life. And he talks about it in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, it's a free offer, free offer to everyone, of all who labor and are heavy laden, everyone, and I will give you what? Rest. This is justifying rest. This is the being declared righteous by simply receiving the free gift of eternal life. By the way, the word rest here is a different word than the one in Hebrews, but it's the same root word. Instead of katapausis, it's katapao, uh, anapao. This is the verb. So instead of katapao, it's anapao. Same root word, but slightly different meaning. But he goes on to say then in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Once you've received and come to him, the free offer of eternal life, and received eternal life, then what do we do? We grow. We follow him. We listen to him. We do what he tells us. We learn from him. And what happens when we do that? We find rest for your souls. The word souls there in English, many people often think, oh, that's talking about the eternal aspect. No, no. Soul is just the word psuche in Greek. It means the physical life. It can mean the immaterial part of man, depending on the context. But it most often just means life. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat and drink, and your body, what you're going to put on, what are you going to wear in this life. Is not life more than food. He's talking about the physical life. In uh, Romans 16, at the end of his letter, Paul said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. He wasn't talking there about his eternal life, his physical life. So he's saying, you're going to find rest physically for your psuche, the, ho the whole life, mind, will, and emotions, if you take Christ's yoke upon you and learn from him. So there's the eternal rest, heaven, and then there's the rest now. But in the future, there's not only justifying faith that gets us into heaven. There's also qualities of blessing and rest in the kingdom as we've talked about. This kind of rest is the same word here that's used by Jesus in Matthew 11 is what's used in Philemon when Paul talked about how Philemon refreshed him. He was very refreshing. His love was refreshing to Paul. How many of you need to be refreshed today? That's rest, same word in Greek. Rest. <clears throat> Paul refers to both justifying faith and sanctifying faith in Romans 1.17 when he says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now this has puzzled some commentators, and I, I, I never understood why, because 
the book of Romans in particular talks extensively about justification and sanctification. The book of Romans is one of the easiest books to outline. So is Revelation, by the way. But the book of Romans is pretty clear. Chapters 1 through 3, you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner with no hope, and you're going to go to hell. And nobody has an excuse because we're all born sinners. <laughs> all right? If you stopped reading Romans after chapter 3, you'd be depressed. Chapters 4 and 5, good news. God commendeth His love toward us, and yet in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's good news. The predicament that you find yourselves in, in chapters 1 through 3, has a, has a rescue, and that's the gospel, Romans 4 and 5. Chapter 6 through 8, now that you've been saved, what do you do? How do you live the Christian life? How do you struggle with the spirit and the flesh, this new man and the old man? It's all about sanctification. Chapters 1 to 5 are about justification. 6 to 8 are about sanctification. 9 to 11 are about Israel. What about Israel? Has God abandoned them? What about all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament? Did He forget them? Did He change His mind? No, there's a future for national Israel. Paul makes that very plain. And the Deliverer is going to come out of Israel and usher in the long-awaited kingdom, he says at the end of chapter 11. But right now, God has entered into a period of blindness for Israel because they rejected the Messiah. They crowned Him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And so God has shifted His focus now to the body of Christ, the church, Jew and Gentile in one body. But the church is just part of God's plan. It's not the end-all, be-all of God's plan. The church has not replaced Israel. Someday the church is going to be rescued from this present evil age, Galatians 1-4, at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and then God's spotlight on earth is going to shift back to Israel. And that final seven-year period prophesied to Daniel in Daniel chapter, 20, uh, Daniel chapter 9 is going to be fulfilled. And so is everything else that's unfulfilled in Scripture. So, And then chapters 12 to 16, the rest of Romans, are all about practical admonitions to Christians on, on how to live the daily life. So Romans is not that complicated. And Paul right here at the outset says, I'm going to be talking about faith at the moment of salvation uh, in believing the gospel and sanctifying faith throughout your Life, because it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. That means you will be born again, regenerated, find life by faith, but you're also going to live day by day by faith. You walk by faith and not by sight. So there's an unmistakable peace that comes from trusting God, and it's called rest. That's the provision for rest. Uh, he talks about the principle of rest uh, just briefly, he, the writer here brings up the idea of God's resting on the seventh day in verses 4 and 5. Uh, this principle was established at creation. God rested after His work. Rest always follows the faithful completion of a task. The Israelites could have rested from their work in the wilderness if they had simply trusted and obeyed God. But they didn't, so they never got to enter the promised land of rest. Notice what he says. Uh, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again, he quotes Psalm 95. He's quoted this a lot uh, in so far in the book of Hebrews. Uh, must have been one of his favorite psalms. Uh, psalm 95, we said it was an anonymous psalm. It's an enthronement psalm speaking about God's reign over the whole earth. Um, but the, the, the inseparable principles of work and rest are foundational to humanity. Did you realize that God gave Adam work to do before Eve was even created, to tend the garden and name the animals, right? Work, then rest. God called the Israelites to work in the wilderness, to trust and obey Him, but they failed. No work, no rest. The concept of rest was hardwired into the Jewish law, remember? 
Uh, in Exodus, we read, Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Now, we're no longer under the law, but the principle's still there. We still need rest. And we find that rest in Jesus Christ who came to fulfill the law. So I find it interesting some people completely miss the point when they legalistically hold on to the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament, which, by the way, are the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament, is the Sabbath law. Uh, but they hold on to it legalistically. And I grew up in a culture where we at times belonged to churches. We moved a lot, but one time we belonged to a church where you, you know the pastor would preach from the pulpit. You can't mow your lawn on Sundays. You can't do any kind of work on Sundays. You can't work on your car. You can't do anything. You can't rake leaves, right? Well, that's the exact opposite of the point here. The point is you ought to be able to find rest after you've done the work. And there's no, We're no longer under the law, the Jewish law. We're under grace, and the law is written on our hearts in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God tells you to go out and spend a good, healthy Sunday afternoon doing some work around the house. Knock yourself out. There's no problem with that, biblically. Um, it's the same thing God told Peter in the vision. The law also said you can't eat certain meats, and God showed Peter the sheet with all these things on it and said, no, I, Knock yourself out. Eat. and Because we're in this age of grace. And not that God always isn't a God of grace, but this is an age where we're no longer under the law. But that principle is still there. Same thing with tithing, by the way. We're not under the tithing laws, but the principle of giving is still there. And you're supposed to support the Lord's work on planet Earth through the local church, right? So work, then rest. Trust and obey God, and then you'll be rewarded abundantly with rest. You want some well and Needed and well-earned rest? Well, then keep doing what you're doing, but do it by faith. Trust in God through it all, and you'll find rest. You, want to have, you have to work if you want to find rest. Those who give up and sort of throw up their hands and say, I've had enough, forget it, it's too much, well, they're no longer working, right? They're no longer exercising their faith, walking by faith. And so they're not going to experience that deeper level of God's rest. So that's the, the principle of rest. Have you ever noticed how when we're running from God, living in the flesh, not obeying His Word, we get really tired? You ever notice that? Proverbs 15, 13 reminds us the way of transgressors is hard. It's hard living a sinful life. Hard on the body, hard on the mind, hard on our emotions. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So when we're not trusting God, it's going to not go well. Trust and obey God. Work. And then comes rest. And then we see the proposal for rest, the possibility of rest for the Israelites, specifically in their case, the possession of the promised land and life in it, did not end when Joshua defeated the Canaanites. It was a perpetual offer. Each succeeding generation of Israelites needed to trust and obey God. And uh, to make sure that they enjoyed their own rest. He says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. In other words, the failure of some Israelites in Moses' generation did not cancel out the truth that some will enter the rest and will continually, perpetually enter it. He goes on to say, He designates in a certain day, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Future generations, the descendants of Abraham and Moses, did not lose their opportunity to receive God's rest simply because the generation in the wilderness dropped the ball. In David's day, which he's quoted 
you know, David a lot throughout the book of Hebrews, as we're going to see. God re-extended this offer of entering rest. And each generation has to respond. That each generation has their today, if you will. Every generation of believers needs to continue and trust and obey God. The writer in chapter 3 had previously talked about this idea of today, and he applied it to us. Remember that? We looked at this two weeks ago. He said, we've become partakers. That just means sharing an intimate fellowship with Christ. The word metakoi there doesn't talk about, it doesn't mean going to heaven. But we're sharing in, in our intimate relationship with Christ if we hold fast our confidence steadfast to the end. And then he quotes this same verse today. So we have our today right now as well. He goes on, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if that was the end of it, if, that was, if, if the final rest had occurred in Joshua's day, then God would not be perpetually offering this rest through the Psalms. Uh, the conquest in Joshua's day didn't lead, even for that generation, to a permanent possession of the land. And by the way, it didn't lead to a complete possession of the land either. They've never, to this day, occupied the full land as described in Genesis 15 in the Abrahamic promise. Um, but it didn't, certainly didn't lead to a permanent possession. I mean, how many problems did the Israelites have through the years, I mean, that's what the whole Old Testament tells us about. So every generation has to continue to trust God to ensure its own rest. So the bottom line is there remains a rest for the people of God. And he who has entered that rest has ceased from his works. works work is the opposite of rest. Spiritually speaking, we gain eternal rest, justifying rest by grace through faith, not works. And guess what? We obtain practical rest the same way, sanctifying rest the same way, by grace through faith. I think one reason that so many people are weary is because they're working too hard for something they cannot get any other way except by trusting God. Paul said it this way, Are you so foolish to the Galatians? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, having trusted in Christ through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to give you eternal life, are you now going to try to live out that new life in Christ on your own, in your own efforts, in your own strength? No, walk by faith. The proposal is simple. There is a rest, and it's available today. Well, so how do you get it? That's what he tells us in the final three verses. What's the process? First of all, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. It's not going to be easy. Walking by faith isn't easy. See, we equate easy and hard with not working and working. <laughs> See, it's hard to work. It's not hard to not work. That, that's, a, that's a false connection there. Work can be hard or easy, and rest can be hard or easy. It's hard to walk by faith, right? Be diligent to enter that rest. And by the way, if rest referred to eternal life or heaven here in this context, we wouldn't have to exercise diligence because God has promised eternal life to all believers, not just the diligent ones. He doesn't say, only you diligent Christians get to go to heaven. No, whosoever will may come and all, that all may have eternal life. So we've got to be diligent, first of all. And then he goes on to talk about the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Only the Word of God can really work with our faith in tandem to convict us and show us the areas that we're not yielding to the Holy Spirit. And it's like a two-edged Sword. The word sword in this particular verse refers to a small boning knife that cooks used to cut up meat. In its double-edged form, it was really a sim symbol of what judges in the first century and magistrates in the Roman world used to exercise judgment. It, it sort of illustrates the power of those officials to turn both ways 
to get to the bottom of the case, right? They could really judge it correctly. And that's what the Word of God does. It's piercing even the division of soul and spirit. It's able to distinguish that within us that is soulish. Remember what we said soul means, everything about our lives, from that which is spiritual, everything about us that is related to God. So we can determine, is this a fleshly desire or is this a heavenly desire? Is this a bad desire or a good desire? And he, the Word of God allows us to discern what our intentions and thoughts and attitudes are. He goes on to conclude by saying there are nothing that is naked and uh, that is not naked and open to him, to him. He is he's completely uh, sees everything. So when we depart from God, when we try to live life on our own, essentially what we're saying is we're being foolish because we're acting like God doesn't see everything already anyway. God already knows your deepest fears. You don't need to run from them. We're not hiding anything from him. We need to lean into our fears. Say, God, man, I'm scared, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of it. Anyway, that's the process. Be diligent, start today, and stay in His Word. Rest for the weary. You feel like you need to hand the ball off to someone else so the pressure's not on you. You feel like you need some rest in the midst of this chaos and probably only going to get worse. You need a break? Trust in God. Or as our scripture verse, and this is my takeaway for the day, that we quoted a moment ago, rest in the Lord, David said. Wait patiently for Him. Don't fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Rest in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this reminder from Your Word about the encouragement to trust You. And Lord, we confess our lack of faith, and we ask You to help our unbelief. And Lord, we just uh, pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that they would begin that journey of faith with the most important step of faith that they can. That is trusting in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only one who can forgive their sin. Because he died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sin. So I pray if there's anyone here today that wouldn't leave here today without placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.